Hello and welcome to episode 102 of The Dive Down, 102, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, how are you, my friend? What's on What's on your hat today? It's a little like a little desert scene. Yeah, a little cactus. Happy little cactus. A little sand dune. <laughs> what What does that have from? I bought this in uh, uh, right outside of Zion National Park. Oh yeah, in the desert of Southern Utah. Is it? I've, I haven't been to Utah. I really want to go. It's not that far from me. Yet I haven't been there. Shane, I would be willing to bet and stake my reputation on you absolutely loving Moab and Zion. Oh yeah, just loving oh, yeah. it. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go look at some rocks and be like, those are some good-looking rocks look at them stones <laughs> also with us the godfather dave harberger stan what's your take on if i would like moab and zion i don't know if i don't know that you're big into climbing on land formations no that's terrible i don't want to do that yeah probably not for you then i like to sit near land formations there's some of that in zion there was like a hike where we didn't have to do any climbing but you walk down kind of like this paved trail and then you have to walk through a river Mm -hmm. so if you're okay being exposed to the elements a little bit and walking through water it's pretty breathtaking and fun Mm, i don't know on this week's episode we're doing a very special show for longtime patron and pal sean for sean's patreon episode he asked us to take a walk through everyone's favorite style of deck tribal think about it you know we're right Everyone has that one tribal that first captured their imagination and magic, whether you're a member of the folk, a spooky friend, or a gabro. This one goes out to Sean and the little tribal fan in all of us. Gabret. Yeah, gabro, gabret. Gabroni. Gabroni. What was the what was the tribe for you? What was the tribe for you all? I know you know, everybody goes through the same phase when they first get into magic. Are robots a tribe? No. Okay. Brass man is a tribe. Summon brass man. No, it's not. I was into brass man tribal. <laughs> back and revised it's me me i'm a brassman yeah oh man i mean remember when black white warriors were like a like they're not really a thing yeah that was sort of a thing that was like my first exposure to tribes and then like that was a good draft deck you could go black white with a splash of green or black white with a splash of red and get your mardu get your abzan on with the warriors oh yeah you remember how uh blush blush was like the merfolk guy mm-hmm. you know in chicago and like mm-hmm. that was like my exposure to like what tribes were and like what aether vial was and kind of like how that all worked and i was like oh this is sweet and then it wasn't so sweet because merfolk kind of yeah we'll get to that <laughs> stan just held up a picture of elvish mystic i believe which none of us are surprised by heritage druid we know it stan loves it what do you think was my first tribe you guys want to guess not brassman uh brassman tribal was niche niche it was Dijins. I was I was actually going to ask if it was Jin. I mean, no. that was a pretty good deck, but I would say that it was walls. <laughs> Oops, all walls. I really like to put uh, animate wall on a wall of swords back and revise and just really hope that that was going to do something for me. Did it get you there? No, no not once. Wall of S words. Anyway, we're going to talk about tribal decks this week, why people love them, why people can't get enough of them, and some of the common characteristics that they have, focusing mostly on modern so thanks again, Sean, for his support for all the this time in uh, Patreon, and let's get into it. Yeah, we should probably mention the reason Sean got to pick this week's topic is because he's one of our top tier patrons. And in that bracket, was that triple hollow foil ghost rare, something like that, on the Patreon? <laughs> Sounds right. You get to decide a episode topic for us twice a year. We'll talk about anything at all, anything you want. Make us uncomfortable if you can. 
I'm going to have to veto any Patreon episodes that are about Denver weather, though, because we get enough of that already. <laughs> I'm trying so hard not to talk about it. Thanks. Now, every, every week. I appreciate it. I have to think it. of something else. It's usually what's in the background of, what's in the background of like Stan's camera or something. <laughs> Before all that, though, let's do a little housekeeping. Shout out to new patrons to join the Dive Down Nation. Jan C. Goose. Lorenzo C. And DJR, which I think stands for Disc Jockey. <laughs> it's Danny Tanner Jr. Mm. Thanks, Danny Jan- Danny Janner Jr. <laughs> um, we have a, we've got a new plug this week. Okay, so we have uh, we have a new affiliate sort of set up with Untapped. We talked a lot about them last week. Uh, they are an arena tracking software, and so what you do is you sort of just download it, you run it. It tracks what you're doing on Arena. Uh, it can display like your deck list, your odds of drawing, um, you know, your next mountain or your next swamp or whatever. You know, it can tell you what your opponent has played. Um, importantly, too, it tracks your stats and your performance in Magic Arena. So you can be like, okay, well, this is feeling like it's not so great. But then you go look and you're like, well, I'm actually like eight and six. That's pretty reasonable. Or you can be like, oh, I'm like, I'm one and six. This is terrible. This the deck is as bad as I feel uh, playing with it. Um, so if you haven't already installed, uh, untapped and use arena, we all use it. We all like it. Um, the reason that I worked on this affiliation with untapped is because I thought it was really good. And I thought the website was really good and the data is really good. And they were like, yeah, we're doing this affiliate thing. If you want to give people a custom URL, to download the software. All you got to do is download it. You don't have to buy anything. You don't have to subscribe to premium. If you want to support the show, uh, just by downloading a piece of software, look, you don't have to install it. Okay. All you got to do is, all you got to do is download it. So just the, the link will be in our show notes. Um, do us a solid, uh, click it and it helps us out. Awesome. You can also support us while playing magic online. Also known as magic, the old fashioned way. This month, the Mana Traders Tournament is Modern. So if you like Modern or you like any of the decks we talk about on this episode, subscribe to Mana Traders. You can rent them with basically, I think, the middle tier. You don't have to shell out all the bucks, just some of the bucks. If you sign up for Mana Traders using promo code the Dive Down, you'll get 15% off your first three months of a Mana Trader subscription, rent Magic Online cards, have fun playing your favorite card game. Now, which one of the decks that we played this week, do you think one of us is most likely to pick up and try to qualify with in the Manitrader series? What do you think? Stan. Do you, do you think the one you did, Stan, is you're going to go for it? Or 100% what do you think? Stan. You think it's you? Let's see. <laughs> He's waving his hand. It might be me. My deck was sweet. Or as I like to call it, sweet. <laughs> yeah, also, I mean, let's talk about the Patreon a little bit. We talked about Sean. Um, the top tierist of patrons do get that extra special bonus. Otherwise, um, you can support us by going to patreon.com slash the dive down. There's all sorts of benefits for various tiers. It helps keeps us going. It helps pay for all the things that we got to pay for, um, like our editor, like the swag that we uh, send out in various batches. I know we're a little bit behind on some of that, and I will take full responsibility for that. I know, Stan, you've been sending a bunch of playmats. That's right. Over this weekend, I carried a big pile of playmats over to the post office. A bunch of people were standing in line probably to send some gift packages to their loved ones, friends, and families all over the world. But I had prepaid labels, so I got to cut oh, my man. ahead of the line, dropped all the boxes off in a large bin, and a bunch of beautiful dive-down playmats are going out. By the time this episode comes out, Frankly, a lot of people may already have received them. Now, where'd you get those labels? 
Stamps.com. <laughs> our new affiliate. Our new sponsor, <laughs> PayPal. So people people might not know, but the only time I see Stan in, in real life is when there are labels to be printed for the uh, the playmats. And then he sends me an email and asks me to print them out on my printer. And he drives across town. And he comes to my house and I put them on my front porch. And then I look at him through glass and wave. <laughs> When he comes Stamps. and picks up the labels. Stamps.com, get at us. You know yeah. what? I'm a millennial. I've never owned a, owned a printer. I've just been stealing free ink and paper from my office from work for years. And now that I work from home, I, I, don't have, I can't do that. So I just have to steal Dave's paper. And exactly. Yeah, I understand. It's nice to know that you're actually a living being still. So I'll take it. All right, 11 minutes in. We got there. No problem. Some good bits. <laughs> a few good bits later. Let's hop over to Shane, who's fronting the news desk this week. Now, Shane, I have it here that you are at the Zendikar Rising Players Tour Championship over the weekend. Yeah, I was I was actually uh, an official broadcaster of the Zendikar Rising Championship uh, in that I, uh, I restreamed the broadcast and hung out with some of the, the people of the Dive Down Nation on my Twitch and the Twitch channel. That's some people are hanging out right now. Um that was a lot of fun, actually. It was a good way to kind of watch the tournament uh, with with friends, more or less. And you, you know, you popped in, I think, on Friday, Friday yeah. Saturday. Yeah, it was awesome. That was sweet. Um, so yeah, this this week's breakdown is actually pretty timely. Um, if you didn't listen last week, you missed our first week covering historic, which is arenas non rotating format. Um, if you want to see what our thoughts on historic are, uh, ways to get into that format, the decks of the format, the meta game. All that kind of stuff. Listen to it. It was a it was a fun week. Um, it's a and it's a new way for us to engage with magic and with you out there. And as it just so happens, the Zendikar Rising Championship took place this past weekend. It was a mixed format championship. It had eight rounds of standard, seven rounds of historic, and the top eight was all historic. So it ended up being a pretty great way for us to get some high level tournament data to keep rolling on this historic train. So do you think when they do that, when when they make historic the top eight format, is that to draw extra attention and excitement to the format? Or is there some kind of strategic tournament design that goes into how that was planned out? I think the strategic design is get more excitement on the format. So this, <laughs> it's marketing, which is fine. Hey, we love marketing, but... Pays the bills. Uh, um, I, yeah, I mean, I think that they... I, I don't know why they decided to have this tournament be the one where they push Historic forward, but there's definitely been, as we talked about last week, that kind of drumbeat of more interest coming in the format. And then suddenly there was a Pro Tour at the same time. So maybe there's a little something more to it, but definitely, you know, people seemed pretty excited about it on Twitter. Um, I will say we're about to talk about the Historic metagame. And last week I was kind of hoping that there might be some surprises with the metagame, maybe some teams kind of uh, kind of come in with, a, with some new tech. But how did that metagame look? A lot of the same. Yeah. It's important, I think, to mention that there's a lot of considerations into what people played, what their performance ended up looking like. You know what I mean? Like it's it's a split format, so you can't get like an exact idea of the performance of various players and their historic decks. Well, you can't get a look at it just from like the first level stats. Yes, you can yeah. get a look at it if you look a little bit deeper into the articles. Plenty of people are doing analysis, but oh, number yeah. one thing about Pro Tours to remember all the time is they are all split formats in one way or another. Yes. And you got to keep that in mind when you're looking at the top eight raw. It's also a pretty small field. Like the, it was what, like 185 players or something like that. So, you know, it's, it's, 
there's a lot of, cons- of factors and considerations here, and a lot of that we'll be talking about right now as we talk about like the overall metagame. So the the top was it was pretty top loaded. Okay, so if you combine the sacrifice decks, we had 56 or 30.4 percent of the field. 20 percent was was Jund, and 11 percent was Rakdos. Our Sultai and four color mid range decks were 52 or 28.3%, uh, 20.1% were four color and 8.2 were Sultai mid range. And then we have kind of the others, right? We have goblins at 12.5 Azorius Auras at 6.5 Azorius control at 4.9 colorless ramp at 2.7 Demir control at 2.2. And then kind of our pile of others and the the most common ones there are only two copies of like Kethis combo saltai paradox engine and azorius cycling a couple of those we'll be talking about in kind of our cool decks ink segment hmm. so this this is pretty concentrated right like nearly 78 percent of the field were in the top four deck archetypes that's if you're bucketing like sacrifice and mid-range together in their own little you know, sack and mid-range buckets. And in those two alone, that's over 58%. That's a lot. Yeah. I think it's funny that you, you're like the top four decks are six. What do you say? 68%, 78%, 78. 78%. Yeah. But if you look at the the breakdown, it's, it's sacrifice is 30%. Yeah. Saltai is 28%. Yes. Goblins is 12%. And then for some reason, you decided to bucket in Azorius Auras <laughs> with that top four, which is 6%. That's a little bit arbitrary. A little so, bit. Let's, a little let's arbitrary cutoff there. 71.5% in the top three, top three deck archetypes. I, I think that's a more telling story than including Azorius in there. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of the story of this tournament and is, is sacrifice, mid-range, and goblins, more or less. And we'll talk about kind of what other decks peeked their head in and, and had a chance here and, and even more than had a chance uh, may have even won the tournament. So what are the, think the factors that went into this being the case? It's like extremely top heavy, very focused on mid range or sacrifice value. Um, things that I were thinking about was like, you know, it's, it's a split format, right? And like it did favor standard a little bit, but the top eight was historic. So I don't know, like were players focusing more on historic than they were standard. I did see a uh, doom wake in uh, aspiring spikes, Twitch chat today saying that they did focus a lot more on historic than standard. And it did cost them some equity. Uh, I think spike did say it's kind of the same thing. He was like, yeah, I think my, my deck selection for historic was really strong, but I think I might've you know chosen the wrong deck for, for standard. Like, what do you think happened here? Were people like saying, like, I, I'm going to pick something safe, or am I? You know, I want to experiment more with standard. I don't really know. Like, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that historic is just a more interesting, exciting format to play, test, and experiment in. And standard is kind of just like easy to treat like low hanging fruit, where if you sort of understand the deck at least at a high level, and you just pick up a strategy that you think you're familiar with, you can probably get by in your skill level as a magic player and perhaps less so with your skill level as a standard player, whereas historic is a bit more demanding and and more interesting. Well, that's actually kind of what I was getting at, Stan, is like, why do you think that people chose safe decks in historic? So I, I would, my take would be kind of the other way, which is that I think we're in an era 
right now where um, these championship events happen longer after the t- after the sets come out. And so the impact is more clear. There's more de- like I'm more of a believer in this story about what's going on with pro tours these days, which is the meta is more settled before these premier level events happen. People look at the metagame, they try to tweak out the decks that they're picking or try to pick the right one as a team. But you see less people these days trying to do kind of meta-breaking brewing. And I was hopeful that might happen in Historic because there hasn't been a lot of attention on it the last couple of months. But it does look like people kind of went in, looked at the metagame that existed, tried to optimize the right deck, and then kind of just went with, with that. Now, people made a lot of different choices, but we did have this really extreme concentration of the top two decks at basically 58% of the, of the field between two decks and then 70, if you count goblins as part of that tier. And these are also like very pro decks. Do you mean like if a deck like this is good, I think that, or decks like these are good, at least I think that these are the kind of decks that good players want to play because they give you both raw power and synergistic power and options, right? So a deck like Saltai or four color mid range, you know, gives you some of the best cards in the format, some of the best options in the format and the ability to outplay your opponent. And I think that, you know, sacrifice allows you to do that. Sacrifice is also a good meta call. Like if you're, say you're expecting a lot of goblins or you're expecting a lot of other aggressive decks, like that really stops creature decks in its tracks. They can grind out a finish pretty well. They can kind of win even from a position that looks pretty dangerous. And then, you know, then you look at the third tier deck of, of goblins and that's kind of like what a raw aggressive deck that really can get the opponent dead. And as I think we see, you know, the, the best performing goblin deck offers some resiliency for the longer game as well. Were you surprised by anything like this? Like anything that was missing? Like I personally was surprised about gruel aggro not being there at all because mm-hmm. like statistically it's a strong deck even at like the diamond and mythic levels, like it's nearly a 60% win rate according to untapped data. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that that one showed up less. I will say, you know, I wasn't super surprised that another aggro deck showed up less, you know, as auras like the pan stack. I wasn't too surprised that that didn't show up very big, even though that also has big win percentages according to untapped because, um, because, you know, I, I don't think many pros want to play those kind of decks when they go to a tournament for this much money. They, um, I do think that they favor decks that give them more options, and that's a little bit how you end up on a meta like this. You guys keep talking about options, but it's Uro and Thoughtseize. <laughs> like, it, it's just two of the best cards in the format and Magic, period. Yeah, I mean, and, and Nissa, but, you, you know, you have options like, what do I counter? What do I remove? When do I cast my extinction events? What am I aether gusting? And when, like, when am I actually trying to get my Uro out to get value? It's, it's, that's the kind of stuff that, you know, players like because there's so many lines and you can think so many turns ahead. Whereas, like, when I'm playing Gruel Aggro, like, I might be thinking one turn ahead or two turn aheads, you know, two turns ahead, but it's not quite the same. I mean, it's not saying that you can't play these decks to their, you know, utmost top tier ability. But I think that decks like sacrifice have a lot of lines, have a lot of ways to eke out maximum value. And I think so to, so do the Sultai and four color decks. 
And again, that's what I think. Like that's that's why you see people like uh, Brad Nelson and Reed Duke, and you know those kind of players, uh, Gabe Nassif, and you know all those people that you know their name. They're bringing these decks because they want to be able to say, "I'm going to get maximum value out of every card in here." Now, I do think the flip side of that coin is that usually there's some aggro contenders in the field that are good enough to keep up and provide some incentive even for really good players to want to take them in because they're not, you know, the value cards aren't generally so clearly just better than everything else, you know? And so I think that there's a little bit of worry and it's, you know, Shane's going to go through the rest of the meta here, but as, as we go through the kind of increasing meta based on performance, we're going to see some trends emerge there that make me a little worried about historic, I guess, but you know, there's often a pro tour meta game where like, two aggro decks make it into the top eight because those decks are powerful and synergistic and they're enough to make up that gap that the optionality brings to the mid-range ish mid-range plus decks let's say but that didn't happen here right like goblins is sort of that deck but also it's kind of a combo deck and, and it's also got some like medium grind potential depending on the build like the the build that autumn brought was had a lot of card draw in it essentially card advantage kind of engines. And so I think that's other stuff to just keep in mind here. Sure. Yeah. So I, I looked at the top 64 players. I found out what deck they each brought and played with. Um, I made, you guessed it, made some pivot tables. So, Hey, I'm man. If you do the dive down drinking game, we just said pivot <laughs> tables. <laughs> so with the data, you can look at, you can look at some general trends on how well decks performed, right? Like did the percentage of decks, grow from the tournament meta like did they start at 30 and end at 40 um or did the reverse happen type thing so our top 64 uh jun sack 25 percent four color mid-range 25 percent exactly the same both 16 decks and then sultai mid-range and racto sacrifice seven decks each or 11 percent so we went from what like 30 and 28 to about 36 percent each for sacrifice and mid range as our meta archetypes. Then right below that, we have goblins at about 8%, Azorius auras at about 5%, and then a smattering of other decks at uh, 3 and 1.5%. So just to check myself, when I first saw this, I was like, wow, that's a big drop off for the goblins players. But part of that is based on these players' performance in standard tournaments, too, right? Yeah. So goblins had about a 4, 4.5% drop off. Um, from the overall meta to the top 64 conversion. And then Auras was a little bit of a drop-off as well. But we're dealing with a couple issues here, right? Well, one is like it's a fairly small pool of players in the first place. And like you said, there's some noise in the data because we have standard performance as well, uh, sort of to getting into the top 64 era uh, area. Yeah, but still, the only decks that grew in MetaShare were Sacrifice and Midrange, and the other, the other ones all went down. Exactly Basically is the story yeah. here. Yeah. So we saw we saw the the good decks or the good performing decks in this tournament uh, are sacrifice in mid range, and then we see this now. So that's seventy two percent of the top sixty four are in these top two deck archetypes, right? So that's up from fifty eight percent in the beginning of the whole field, and then we go to the top thirty two, and we have four color mid range at thirty four percent, Jund Sack at twenty five percent. Sultai mid at 9%, Rakdos sacrifice at 9%. So that's 43% mid range, 
34% sacrifice. So that's 77% of our top 32 meta are these two meta archetypes, which is saying that's pretty, that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. And it's fascinating that sacrifice didn't put anything into the top eight, given that what a percentage it was of the top 64, you know, top 32 going into the end of the competition, there wasn't a single deck there. So I guess maybe the pilots who were piloting this deck picked bad standard decks is what we take away from that. But I mean, there's, there's a lot of factors, tiebreakers, all that kind of stuff. Matchup quality with the premier mid-range deck that's splashing white to beat up on sack. Yes, that, that's the thing. We see we see the four-color mid-range deck increase its percentage quite a bit over the day, even more than Saltai did. And that's likely because of its strong matchup against Sacrifice decks because of Yusharn, uh, Implacable Earth, right? Yeah. I just don't understand how the meta ended up on these two. I guess, like you said, Jund is just, or not Jund, Sacrifice is so good against <laughs> all the against all the cre- creature decks that it was worth playing, even though you knew that you might be running into a huge pig-shaped roadblock eventually. Yeah. That's what's mildly surprising to me, is like, the, I, I would I would have assumed that pros would be playing three and four color mid range decks myself, but it's kind of easy for me to say on the outside, right? It's like, hey, uh, if I have a bad matchup against Sultai, I don't really want to be bringing this deck because I imagine there'll be a lot of players with it. But you know, hindsight and outside and and seeing this from the outside, I wasn't playing. Yeah, we're nowhere near good enough to even have conversations. With we can still try. <laughs> So any thoughts on this before we move on to the top eight? Well, I mean, one thing I thought that was was interesting to talk about before we go to the top eight is to talk about the matchup data quickly. So, so not huge, but exists. Right. Well, obviously, it's a small sample size because it's just within the tournament. But there's some interesting stuff in here. Well, that's um, from MTG Data. They yes. have a good Twitter yes. thing going on. So please follow them. And their data source is from MTG Melee? Malay? Yeah. <laughs> Malady? Yeah, MTG underscore data yeah. on Twitter. So check them out. According to them, the only decks that had positive win rates and reasonable sample sizes against the metagame were Rakdos Sacrifice, Saltai Midrange, and Four Color Midrange. Everything else was below 50%. Discuss. Yes. So, yeah. it. I mean, what's interesting to me is we were talking just last week about the Arena Deckless episode about Rack Sack, and just prior to that, or like the same week, Gary, Jerry, Jerry Thompson wrote an article for SCG basically saying that Raxac is the best deck in the format and basically, you know, expounding on why you don't need green, why you don't need cocoa when you can be a much more streamlined sack strategy. And sample size here is still small, but I feel like that's sort of leaning toward his conclusion too. We even see that the Raxac decks have a slightly better performance against the mid-range the four color mid-range strategies those are those like granular ones are really noisy like they're within three percent of each other overall win rate and within seven percent of each other and that's straight up matchup so i'm not sure it's like conclusive but maybe it, it does do a little bit better um the main thing for me was just fascinating to see that the four color one was the only one with 57 with you know above 55 percent performance and then some of the other ones are just scary like i was talking about i was talking about azorius auras a lot last week and it had a 30.6 percent win rate in the tournament yikes yikes that's brutal yeah 
I mean, this is kind of what I was getting at last week with Goblins too, where the deck is obviously powerful. Muxus is, is an insane card, but it's also super beatable. And once the Goblins deck is disrupted or, you know, sees a wrath, if they can't play Muxus after Muxus after Muxus, then they're kind of just like dead. And we saw some sort of tuned we'll talk about this in the top eight. And I think that probably trickled all the way down is there's some tuning to this expected meta game. Like there's a, there's a significant amount of like essence scatters. Mm -hmm. There's of course, main deck, Aether gust. There are disdainful strokes in the main and the side. And you know, that graph diggers cage. Yeah. Graph diggers cage. So these are things that tag Muxus that tag other important creature spells um, that allow, that don't allow, goblins to take over the game as much as they might in let's say an open meta like on uh the arena ladder Mm -hmm. yeah all right good good bridge into the top eight now okay top eight um i'm gonna go in reverse order from eight to one because one's kind of the most potentially interesting two and one are potentially the most interesting conversation because (laughs) when you put it that way yeah eight through three is pretty boring um good players yeah, really good players. Like eighth place, Gabe Nassif, okay player. Um, on Sultai mid range. Uh, I don't like the color of his hat. <laughs> yellow hat, yellow hat. I don't like a bucket hat either. I don't know why it's a, why is it a yellow bucket hat, but okay. One of the best <laughs> players ever, though. Um, yeah, of course he makes it. He's got a slightly more controlling version on Sultai mid with like he's got a main deck disdainful stroke, essence scatter. Look. You have nice notes here, Shane. Too much. You have nice notes about six of the same deck. <laughs> yeah, th- th- you're right. This here. will take like 15 minutes. So I, I think it's fine, but let's do this like lightning round, okay? Yeah. Eighth place, give us the number one for- feature that was interesting. Yeah, here's the most important thing to know, that they're all a little bit different. Okay. Okay. I think the most interesting about Gabe's Cry of the Carnarian, Cry of the Carnarium, two of main deck, punishes aggro and is rough on sacrifice because of exiles. Uh, seventh place, Jan Moritz Merkel on Sultai mid- uh, main deck scavenging ooze and a Vraska Golgari queen. Also singleton tails end. Why not? Uh, Brad Nelson, sixth place, four color mid. He goes for the Sharn tech, hates on sacrifice, um, two essence scatter main to stop those creature spells. Fifth place, Luca Magni, four color mid, uh, two Yehenny's expertise, uh, provide a mini little mini sweeper and some extra value with a three CMC or less CMC card from hand. Thomas Tomas Pokorny on four color mid uses the obs on mana a little bit more strongly. Two copies of Mythos of Nethroi main. Uh, if you use obs on mana, it's kind of like an instant speed, non land permanent removal spell. Third place, Andrea Manguchi. You might have heard of him. Four color mid. Uh, Manguchi and Brad Nelson, basically the same list. Second place. Okay. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. okay. <laughs> Shane, you would be great put, on a game show. That's great. I'm going to put the bell away now. Uh, we got letters after the hundredth episode anyway. So, all right. So what's your take on all of these, these mid range lists in a, in a row right here? Interesting tweaks. Does it make it either? You guys want to play this deck more seeing how well it did. Does it, do you feel like you're prepared to see all the different variations as you dip into arena here and there? I think most of the variations will be unnoticeable to the average player just because yeah. the core of the deck is, is, somewhat stock and then you kind of have your flavor of the day removal options whether it's yehani's expertise or mythos of nethroi etc yeah this is all like i'm getting thought seized and i'm getting erode and then i'm getting nessa who shakes the world 
I'm getting my world shaken. Like that's that's where it's at. The corner is turned and it is turned very strongly. I this is the deck I will probably build next for a variety of reasons. One, I think it's extremely good. Two, I like Nissi who shakes the world a lot. And three, I think these cards aren't going anywhere unless they get banned. And even if this even if this deck gets banned, the core here are all good cards, right? Like these are all good cards like removal spells, like sweepers, like planeswalkers. And if they ban you them, you want to list I, any other kinds of cards that you think are good? <laughs> Counter spells. <laughs> land, I like lands okay sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I, man. I can't believe we finally got Shane to play blue. I know. All it took was six decks in the top eight. Well, here's what's weird is, is midrange has become a blue format i mean it's become like it's 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 blues there now because simic is good right so like you know it's formerly you wouldn't be splashing into blue to get your awesome simic or is it cards it's a real eiffel 65 metagame i i just really can't wait for for shane to put out a new button that says mid-range is dead and historic (laughs) after he messes around with this a little for a little bit all right let's talk about the most interesting decks in the top eight autumn burchette their goblins list. Okay, we get to something non mid range. They smartly chose to run two Herald's Horn main, which is a three CMC artifact, reduces creature spells of a chosen type by a generic mana. Perhaps more importantly, allows you to look at the top card of your library during your upkeep. If it's a creature of that type, you put it in your hand. Okay, that's some good card advantage in these removal and sweeper heavy matchups. And then Birchhead had two more in the sideboard for matchups where it mattered the most, right? Yeah, I, I also like a couple of main deck Mindstones. Gives you some ramp. Catch it in later for a card. Was the list that you were playing before, did it have Mindstone in it? None. None in the 75. The first time that I saw that on, on screen when I was watching over the weekend, I was like, oh, colorless ramp. Like, Mindstone is something that constantly surprised me that, that is available in this format because it's a card that I feel like is sorely missed in Pioneer and does good work in a couple of different decks in modern. And this format feels like just about the right power level for it to be very good. And it's in a lot of decks in this format. You know, it's in the colorless, I think it's in the colorless ramp deck. I might be wrong, but it's in my green planeswalkers deck that I was playing slightly different than some of the other people were playing that I've, that I've seen, but it's, and it's in this goblins deck for that draw and, and ramp. And that's really good for, for certain types of decks that want to cast five drops, basically that win them the game yeah and the ramp is really important i mean it's obviously more important than the draw but goblins is mana hungry you know we talked last week it's not sly this is try to curve out into a six drop so being able to play that six drop ahead of curve you know sometimes you do it with chandra sometimes you do it with uh skirk prospector sometimes with iron crag feet uh i thought it was interesting that autumn cut all the main deck iron crag feet had had some on the side uh, they also had one Chandra in the side, which is a card that I usually like to bring in against the control matchups. But, you know, they knew that this was going to be a control-heavy metagame, and they still only opted for one Chandra. So I, I think this kind of shows, like, how you can be innovative with this strategy that's, you know, mostly solved, very stock, but still find ways to tune it against uh, control and mid-range, where every little last bit of card advantage and every last piece that you can do to be more consistent and play your, your big payoffs as quickly as possible is, is so much more important. Yeah. Kind of heartbreaking to watch the finals. I mean, yeah. a couple of the matches that I, that I saw, I saw autumn play Brad Barkley 
both in the top bracket finals and in the finals finals. And it was, it was a lot, but let's, let's talk about the, the deck that actually won. Yeah. So first place was Brad Barclay on Azorius control. So kind of a, kind of out of nowhere. What? Wait, 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 excuse me. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, cause now we're going to see a lot more Azorius control on the ladder perhaps. Um, so Brad ran out, Azorius didn't drop a historic match the entire tournament. Yeah, well, does that total like 15 matches ultimately or 14 matches or something? Yeah, so it's seven in the Swiss and then ran the top eight, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a... Uh, 11? Yeah, 11. So it's pretty good. I, beating, I take it. Beating Autumn three times? Oh my God. In that? In the fi- both finals and in the Swiss? Yeah, um, I mean... The list looks like you'd expect, right? I mean, you got some Narsets, you got some Teferi Fives, you got some Wrath of Gods, you have all your enchantment-based removal, you got your counter spells, Shark Typhoons, all that good stuff. I really only saw Brad in the finals, and the deck looked really resilient. It looked really capable of handling at least what Goblins was throwing at him. Yeah, I think this deck has been a little bit of a sleeper hit for uh, a minute. I've seen popular arena streamer croakies piloted to pretty decent success periodically um trevor in our slack was talking about how good this was you know for weeks if not months in the past um i don't know if it was a brilliant level three medical per se but i do think that players have broadly underestimated the power of what some folks in the community call the gandalf deck where did that this is literally the first time i've seen that written yeah, what down. Is this? then i saw it on twitter what's that all about i don't know who coined it it may have actually been croakies but People call Blue White Control Gandalf. Hate it. And I got to say, I was playing Arena today, one day after the championship, already running into Azori's Control. I'm sure. It's so tough to beat. Every card, it's either a counterspell, removal, or a shark, or Teferi. And like that just does the job against so much of the metagame, especially against goblins. For sure. Uh, here's, Here's what I think. I have seen this script play out so many times. <laughs> yeah, the the the, P, the PT winning control deck, like Shota or something. Yeah, the PT winning blue white control deck that is five percent of the meta game. People show up with it. Someone takes it all the way to the finals and wins, and then it's not good. Like then it's it continues to not be good or to be like a specialist deck it's not broadly good i guess is what i should say now i i don't know if that's true in historic but i just feel like i'm so prepared for playing a bunch of blue white control for the next three weeks and then I, maybe it'll help the metagame turn a little bit you know as far as like getting more aggro into the format because that's definitely a pressure for someone to like try to go fast although these decks are pretty good at keeping people from going fast so it's it's maybe more like is that going to make Saltai even better? I, I don't know, but um, I'm not. I'm prepared for this to not stick for the long term. I guess I would say. I I'm not sure why you say it's not good, though. I will say your comment about this could put give basically more leverage for aggro decks to go fast to get under it. Historic's not that fast of an aggressive format in the first place, so I think yeah. it's it's kind of hard for the aggro decks in the format right now to actually do that. And I think that's part of why we see soul time mid range just so successful so frequently because you don't necessarily have the incentive to go fast because the strongest decks are going pretty slowly. And I'm not trying to say that this is necessarily not good, but like I said, it's just, I've seen this happen so many times 
and pro tours. Like for sure. I don't, I mean, in modern, I've seen it happen in standard. I've seen it happen in every format you can imagine different times over the years. This just happens occasionally where someone's like a very good control pilot has the right tech cards in their deck and manages to crush it. Um, I think it just happens because pros are good at playing control, you know, (laughs) like Mm -hmm. they understand the format better than casual spikes that, you know, might play, I don't know, 20 matches a week or 30 match, even 30 matches a week, right? Like these people, like some of these players have like 14,000 matches played on magic arena. You know what I mean? With like 70% win rates, some of them. And it's just like, okay, that's not me. (laughs) I'm not doing that. Let's, let's talk about this. We're we're, congrats to Brad. Never heard of this player before the, the four or so matches that I saw him play were, excellent control matches stone cold killer he was unreal and had no emotion the whole time i just like like really good solid playing and also man shark typhoon what a card it's okay it's always good it's like always good it's wild um let's talk about this okay to me this seems not this is this isn't like what i hope to happen after like a players championship type thing you know what i mean like what you kind of hope is like okay maybe i'll get like five to seven different decks in my top eight or even my top 16 people have some different ideas about what's really good in the format but this sort of just sort of coalesces everything around things like sultai or four color mid or the sacrifice decks or maybe if you want to be aggro on the ladder you're gonna like keep stick with goblins but like what do you think this means? Does this mean that other stuff isn't really that powerful compared to the rest of the field or is it just like what happens at a player's championship? Uh, before we do this, I just want to say everybody, all, all the listeners who had Shane complains about the health of a format a week after we start covering on your bingo cards, you can mark that off right now <laughs> with your marker <laughs> that like big fat bingo marker that you Boom. use. We did not put that one in the center, even though we knew that it would probably come up. Okay. Bye. Okay. <laughs> 102 episodes. I, man, I don't, here's the thing. I'm not surprised by this at all. When it, when it really comes down to it with the way people have been talking about these decks, even though we're new, the format, but paying attention for like a a month. Um, I'm not, I'm deep down. I'm not surprised that everybody was like, we're doing salt high. Now I'm a little surprised that Rakdos was at the same level just because I haven't encountered that deck a ton in my laddering and tournamenting so far on arena in my 80 matches or whatever I ever played to this point. But, um, I'm not surprised that it was as polarized, I guess is what I would say. Here's my take. Don't draw any conclusions from any of this data, except maybe trying out some of these different iterations on the decks that you already have and play. So if you're already playing four color mid range, maybe try one of the flavor town cards that we see in like one of these top eight lists uh, if you're playing goblins, maybe try Mindstone. But otherwise, we talk so much about how noisy the data is because it's, in some cases, the success of these players is also informed by how well they did in rounds of standard. We're talking about some of the absolute best players in the world. So they don't necessarily represent the broad metagame that you're going to encounter on Arena in general. And also, we talk about this all the time. Pro Tours kind of have a coalescing metagame around like a handful of strategies that's not that unusual and i think at the end of the day not to sound like too much of uh like i'm fawning over our brand new affiliate but 
I find like data, raw data that kind of shows the performance of a deck over several hundred matches that you see on Untapped so much more valuable than this than like the insights you might glean from one Pro Tour. I agree, Stan. I also think Dave. I'm going to go back to what you said earlier, which is like, this isn't a fresh meta. Like every meta gets more and more solved. And that's why the game is great because we get new injections of new cards that shift things up. Right. So we're two months in to the Zendikar historic meta game and people know what's good. And it makes more sense to go with something that is a known good than try to do something that goes in cool decks Inc. But uh, I think that we'll see what happens over the next few months. I think there'll be continued little, you know, small iterations, and then we'll get, you know, we'll get Kaldheim. Still, will get turned around. We'll get better mana. We'll get new cards. Everything's going to be cool and or cold, and uh, it'll be good. I do just want to pop in real quick. So we we have a pure look at the at the data on the um on the Zendikar on the Magic GG website. Yes. So you can see the decks that did were six and one in historic or better. And they are sacrifice and mid range. It's all sacrifice and mid range and goblins and Azorius and Brad's Azorius lists. So there's, you know, the, the strong performers among the top tier of historic were Saltai as, as well. Basically we're, we're pretty long here. So we could, we could go into cool decks, Inc. Just let's, let's talk about a couple of decks really fast. Yeah. Um, let's do another bell based lightning round. No, that's okay. <laughs> I'll keep the bell away, but Shane, you can take us through what you thought was interesting about these though. Cause these are cool. Yeah. I'll go, I'll go through one here. One, the one that I think people saw pretty early was Kai Buddha. Um, uh, okay. Player, um, brought Saltai paradox engine. I believe he and Yol Larson. Okay. Also another okay player, uh, brought Saltai paradox engine. He went five and two with the deck. Uh, he said on Twitter, uh, his Twitter. So it did something. And this has explosive potential with Kinnon Bonder Prodigy. We talked about this card um, in the Ikoria Ilob uh, spoiler app. When you tap a non-land permanent for mana, you add one mana of that type that it produced. So you get your Llanowar Elves, your Mindstone, your Mox Ambers, and I think also Chromatic Sphere for some ramp. And you create this combo deck that's based around Paradox Engine, which is a five mana artifact. And that states... Whenever you cast a spell, untap all non-land permanents you control. So that lets you untap your mana dorks, lets you untap your mana rocks, cast more spells, also lets you untap your emery mm. to get back things like looping mox ambers because they have legendary and things like that. Also, you set up emery loops with like chromatic sphere where you draw through your whole deck and then win with like a Jace Wielder of Mysteries type thing. Um, it also can be explosive. Like you get some really early board states. Like he had a screenshot against uh, Cedric Phillips where he had resolved Uro and like three other creatures on turn three. <laughs> and so it's just like, it can do some stuff. And um, I think it's a kind of deck, like if you want to have a little fun on the ladder, play like something a little bit off the wall, then go for the Salt Eye Paradox engine. But still play Uro. <laughs> you want to be off the wall, but still play Uro. Yes. Well, oh yeah. You, yeah. You got to play Uro. All right. Uh, real quick. Takahiro Tuma on mono red planeswalkers. Really cool deck. Um, it's kind of like that red prisony or as close to what red prisony could be in uh, historic, but it's got your colorless ramp from Mindstone, guardian idol, which is a card that is 
I see a lot in historic and I think people are going to see more and more is like just kind of a medium staple in the format. It's got some early, early plays in soul scar mage, bone crusher giant, but it's basically like planeswalkers plus medium creatures plus hard of Kirin and sky sovereign console flagship for big vehicle value, which is very, very cool. Uh, but the deck has 10 planeswalkers, three Karn the Great Creator, three Chandra Torch and Chandra Fire Artisan, and three Sarkin the Masterless, which is a win con that lets you attack with your planeswalkers eventually, basically. But I thought this was a really cool deck when I saw it. Uh, and maybe we'll see it around some more. Stan already saw it tonight. That's right. The boats. All right. I got one last one for y'all, too. Alexander Hain, okay player, just want to PT several GPs in their career on azorius cycling and at first kind of looks like the gandalf deck's got a couple teferi hero dominaria i don't know if i'm okay with that stan i don't know <laughs> some white wraths i can't some blue counter spells I mean, this, 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 is, this is just azorius control with drake havens right it's got shark typhoons for the pretty art but yeah three drake havens two abandoned sarcophagus that's five wild cards from amon Kit remastered Abandoned Sarcophagus, I think, is the real interesting card here. You may cast spells that have cycling from your graveyard. Oh. Yeah, it is a wild card. I looked at this the other... I opened one when I was cracking packs on Arena a couple of weeks ago and was like, this seems like a thing that has never been that could be. You know, like, it's a cool cool card that feels like a powerful effect. Yeah, the, the thing is, this deck is full of cards that you can cycle early and then recast at instant speed using sarcophagus because um, it's got counter spells with cycling. It's got draw cards with cycling. Also, Hain finished 3 with the deck. So I would definitely keep an eye out for more players to pick this up. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. I'm sorry to hear that. All right. So that's kind of uh, the story. Uh, I think that hopefully this doesn't indicate that you have to play one of these decks to have fun with historic. I don't think that's the case at all, but that's uh, I think the first it's a, it's a cool tournament outing, cool professional outing um, with some great players playing historic. It was fun to watch on Twitch and I hope that uh, historic remains a tournament stable in the near future. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to dive into tribal week on the dive down. It's not survivor. It's magic. The gathering. All right. This week, like we said, we're doing a special episode for our longtime Patreon pal, Sean. And he asked us to look at tribal decks. Now, like we talked about earlier at the top of the episode, I think that tribal decks are the type of deck that a lot of people identify with when they start playing Magic. You know, how many people listening right now remember that first pack or first few packs that you open? where something you immediately identified with one of the cards in there. Maybe it was a zombie. Maybe it was a merfolk. Maybe it was a goblin. Maybe, Maybe it, was it was a wall. wall like me. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the kinds of monsters that make up magic are one of the most recognizable elements of a game, right? I mean, it's one of the first things, especially if you're a person who came to the game kind of via the like Dungeons and Dragons fantasy portal, you know, the creatures are what really grab your imagination and have kept people interested for the entire run of the game. You know, I made, I've been joking around walls, but I also remember the first time I opened a Goblin King and was like, 
this is sweet. How many goblins are there in, in revised? There's like one goblin in revised. Yeah. It's like Mon's <laughs> goblin Raiders and goblin King. And like that, maybe a couple others. There's not many. And, uh, trying to make a deck that was all goblins and be like, this is not very good. And the goblin Lord doesn't even pump another goblin Lord at this point in time. So, um, but I do remember later on when fallen empires came out and goblin grenade was in fallen empires. And I was like, okay, now we're talking more on that later. Um, they're one of the best ways for people to see themselves in the game. I think tribe tribal decks or tribal, you know, kinds of monsters, basically. I'm a goblin. Yeah, exactly. But you know, you laugh, but like there are people, you know, people identify with all the kinds of different creatures that there are. I mean, I mean, Stan is an elf. Stan's an elf, right? Like, you know, he's kind of willowy. Stan's holding up a token of himself as an elf right now. We all know what that looks like. Uh, I think you can imagine that some formats have even started from the same impulse that drives people to make tribal decks. I would contend that commander is sort of like an outgrowth of the same impulse that leads people to want to make tribal decks in a, in a certain way, definitely back towards the beginning. But what we want to talk about today is a little bit of history around tribal decks. What makes them sometimes successful, often fun, but most of all, really persistent in modern. There are a lot of tribal decks in modern. And then if we took some uh, lesser known tribes for a little bit of a spin for this episode to kind of see where we go from there. So Dave mentioned this, alluded to it, but tribes have existed since the birth of the game. In fact, Alpha had three lords, Goblin King, Lord of Atlantis, and Zombie Master. Man, I hated Zombie Master. (laughs) Why? Because it didn't pump. I was like, what is this card that doesn't give plus one, plus one? It just gives regeneration. Obviously, over the course of the years, Wizards of the Coast has printed lots of more tribes creatures tribal support fun fact legends used to be a tribe and the printing of the set legends basically introduced them as a creature type before the rules changed legends to super type yeah summon brass man used to be a tribe <laughs> before construct <laughs> the brass man cometh yeah uh of course there's been several tribal sets throughout magic's history Lorwyn, ixalan onslaught especially scourge all of Onslaught block was considered a tribal block, but Scourge in particular was a set that was all creatures and provide a lot of tribal support to some of players' favorite creatures in their collection. I think Legions was the all tribal set, by the way. Are they all creature set? Wasn't it Legions? Yeah. Legions okay. is 144 creature only set. So it wasn't Scourge, it was Legions. Oh, thanks. Nice. Good catch. There have also been strong tribal themes in other sets that weren't necessarily tribal. But, you know, all the Zendikar blocks have some kind of tribal synergies, whether they're allies, Eldrazi, or now this party mechanic that has several tribes within it. Khan's block had an impact on tribal strategies, whether it's warriors, whether it's orcs, birds, monks. Yeah. Fallen Empires, too. One of the first big pushes toward tribal synergies. Really powerful set that was. Yeah, the entire story there, which people, I don't know if they realize, like, the entire story behind that was kind of a tribal story, like, uh, in the I don't get into the lore, but yeah, the books, the 17-volume <laughs> set of the Fallen Empires, the, the fall of, Fallen Rise and Fall Again of Sarpedia, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting, I, you see it a lot of places because it's an easy mechanic to kind of sprinkle into different sets and it's something that you can include in a set without having it feel like the set is suddenly completely about this you know what i mean so i i think it's something that's part of the reason that you see it all over the place too other than the fact that it's really popular it's really easy to design around yeah and you know 
writing this and, and doing the history of, of tribes and magic, I didn't know that magic had official emblematic tribes for each of the five colors. And they all kind of make sense. Black is zombies, green is elves, red is goblins, blue is merfolk, white, to my surprise, is humans. Mm. I thought it might be birds or angels. Or angels. Yeah. Who is that according to? Did you check their paperwork? Um, I think this is a combination of article and wiki posts. Articles and Wikipedia posts, yeah. There's also been a smattering of old tribal decks throughout Magic's history that have seen various forms of success. Some that took me by surprise, including mono-white rebels. There was Azorius and Orzov versions of rebels as well. This tribe was so powerful in Mercadian Masks block constructed that it led to the ban of Lynn Civi in that format. Uh, this was right at the end of when I was playing Magic the first time, or kind of like maybe like right after I quit. But a lot of people maybe don't realize that the Rebels all had onboard tutor effects for different Rebels. So what you would do is you would get a Rebel down, stick it, and be able to search for Rebels with lower casting costs than the Rebel that you got into play, and you could do it over and over again. Right. And so this these cards were just like card advantage machines and totally dominated this era of Standard, which was basically Pro Tour Chicago. One of the best, I mean, this I think this is one of the best Standard decks of all time is Pro Tour Chicago 2000, won by Kai Bude with a top eight that included Zvi Moskovitz, Finkel, and also Brian Kibler. A lot of names players. in that one. Wasn't, wasn't this deck kind of like a, a proto... Um, oh, my man, what's that moder- modern deck that got banned where you just chain creatures until you find your payoff? Birthing Pod? Yeah, like a proto Birthing Pod strategy. <laughs> so Birthing Pod had like combo outs, right? This was just a value swarm deck. Like you just played a lot of creatures and killed people with them. They didn't have like a, like a win at the end that was like... Uh, based off of combo basically not a lot of like comes into play effects it was just like i'm gonna get more guys no i'm gonna get more guys no i'm gonna get more like you could also do things like search up removal spells there was a removal spell that you could search up that was like a pacifism that was a rebel spell that was just like wild as well some other successful tribal decks from history blue black fairies in lorowin standard mono white kitkin also pretty popular during the lorowin era Remember Esper Dragons during Khan's standard? This is is the deck that got PVDR not to retire from MTG. Also, Allies. First introduced in Original Zendikar. Yeah, like that weird... It's like a weird, bad five-color humans. (laughs) It's like Allies wish that they were just five-color humans. You know what I mean? Like it's, It's like that's the deck that they could have made in standard, but they just never made the Allies powerful enough to do anything. You know, as we kind of look at what some of these historic decks are, we begin to get a sense of what are some of the common features throughout successful tribal decks. Fairies, aggro control. Dragons, pretty standard straight-up control, but had this very important tribe to some of its most powerful counterspells and other removal. Rebels, a resilient aggro deck. Kithkin, also aggro. We see other styles throughout the tribes elves is this go wide sometimes critical mass aggro deck sometimes it's a combo deck spirits disruptive tempo-y evasive strategy Rofolk is similar in that regard and so is humans can you guys think of any mid-range tribal decks i really couldn't think of any when we were thinking about this 
elemental tribal i don't know like uh titan tribal <laughs> i don't even know planeswalker tribal i thought it was interesting that we're kind of like at two ends like there's the kind of disruptive ones that present strong threats and the ones that just present fast strong threats and then the real outlier here is the like control the dragons control kind of build which is maybe it's a tribal deck maybe it's not it had a lot of dragons in it but to me what do you think do they all feel like they're kind of like different versions of aggro to you generally lately yeah i think spirits in modern kind of fell into a little bit of a mid-range bucket just because it had a little bit of interaction and had you know some forms of removal and some forms of card advantage i mean i guess it depends on how you define mid-range right like mid-range to me sort of means like it can pivot it can be the aggro when it needs to be. It can be the control when it needs to be. And it can do both of them somewhat well. And I think some of the decks can do that okay, right? Where it's like, I I can't, like, I'm not only going to win as the aggro type thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting if you look at kind of like the history of all these decks, I feel like, you know, maybe 20% of tribal decks were combo-ish and maybe 30% or less were control-ish and then the rest are all attacking decks, maybe 50 to 60% of them. And I think that the main thing that they do is they capitalize on a game plan that's familiar to a lot of people in modern in particular that I think a lot of us would call linear aggro, right? Which is there's a theme, the deck builds on the theme and tries to curve out with some kind of card that pays off on that theme every turn. And there you go. They kind of build up these small advantages to be able to turn into a large advantage, and and that's the game plan that they go on. You know, in, in a certain sense, even like old um, old affinity is even a deck that kind of falls into a similar play pattern as something like Spirits does when it really comes down to it. That's what I was saying. Robot tribal, robot tribal. Yeah, and in fact, I think finding where those small advantages come from is in part what makes various tribal decks unique and give them some of their personality because in some cases it's various forms of disruption maybe it's spell queller maybe it's goblin chain whirler these are cards that can actually impact what your opponent is doing while you play toward your plan in some cases it's you know these combo chains that you might run to win on the spot sometimes it's a more controlling strategy with dragons but what we tend to see is that it's never just a matter of play a bunch of two twos for two and some lords and win off of that the decks need a little bit more than that. We're going to talk about what else some of those key, you know, little sprinkles of spice that tribal decks need to gravitate toward the top and maybe other key sprinkles of spice that you should look out for in future sets as you start to think about what it might take for maybe one of your favorite tribal themes that hasn't seen a lot of support to get there one day. Yeah, I think it's kind of important, like what you're getting at, Stan, right? Which is like the good tribal decks can typically do more than just be aggressive, right? Like they can be aggressive and disruptive without compromising the usual core of getting your opponent to zero life. Right. And I think that's, I think it's a lot of what's going to kind of come in and out of like our evaluation, of the decks that we played this week. So let's talk quickly about the kinds of playoffs or like the recurring, sorry, the kinds of payoffs or the recurring qualities that a lot of these tribal decks have. Yeah, so what first up is lords, right? I mean, that's kind of like the thing that people think about is like what gives all of my other creatures of a type more power and toughness. So you know, usually it's like a plus one plus one kind of effect. And so, you know, spirits 
when they got when it got uh supreme you know the supreme pizza boy or, or lady um that that gives you know that was the two mana lord mm-hmm. that spirits needed to catapult into something pretty legitimate uh it gives all of the other spirits plus one plus one so that every attack or block is more powerful gets the opponent uh, dead more quickly um, and also just sort of makes everything else that you're doing better rate than it should be. So like your one mana one, one could be a one mana three, three with just a couple Lords in the battlefield. Yeah. And the floor for Lords, as we find with a lot of decks that rely on kind of like card redundancy, especially in modern is basically eight, right? Like if you're putting a deck that has Lords in it, you probably want eight Lords in your tribal deck. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you, you get some other buffs, like you, maybe you get a, a hex proof on like your three mana Lord it gives hex proof to all the other creatures of that type. Maybe it's like haste or trample or Island walk. If you're like a merfolk or something like that. Right. Um, and like Dave said, it's like, this is kind of a rule of eight thing where it's like four Lords, not so much because you're only going to get those, you know, maybe half the games you play and otherwise you're swinging with like some pretty wimpy one ones for one or two twos for two or something like that. And that's not really a way to play an aggressive uh, strategy like Merfolk. What? 14 Lords sometimes like that's what I counted a recent list was. Yeah. 14, 14 cards that give plus one plus one buffs. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's a good way to beat down quickly. What I thought was interesting is like humans for its status as perhaps like the best tribal deck of the past few years doesn't really have like a capital L Lord in the deck until recently with uh, general Kudro as a two or three of sometimes like the closest thing has been Thalia's Lieutenant because that puts a counter on every human on the board when it ETBs and then it continues to get counters when other humans are played after it. And that's what's interesting about that is it's sometimes even better than a strict Lord because like it's a buff that doesn't need the Lieutenant to remain on the board to provide that that sort of static benefit. And I think it's one of the reasons that humans is such a strong tribal deck is that it's, you know, it's an ETB as opposed to a static. Yeah. And weird, weirdly champion of the parish is sort of like a reverse Lord yeah. effect where it's like one threat gets bigger with, with your, your creatures. Speaking of lieutenants. Yeah, that's right. Thalia's lieutenant. I really like this category that you've, you've identified here, Dave, because I've never thought of what you're about to talk about as quote unquote lieutenants. Yeah, I just didn't know what to really call them. So we got a Lord, and then we got these cards that are like cards that affect all of your members of your tr- your tribal deck, but they don't give a buff, right? In any sense of the word, they don't give a buff. They generally give something like more of more utility or a different angle that you can you can go with. So two that I thought of as examples right now. So one, uh, the big one that came to mind for me is Rattle Chains, which is something that lets you play all of your spirits at instant speed. Doesn't make him any bigger. Doesn't do much else for the deck. It doesn't give him extra evasion or anything like that. But it does let your deck play in a totally different way when you have Rattle Chance on the board than when you don't have it. And, um, you know, that that's one example. And then another example that I thought of, which is kind of a weirder one, is Skirk Prospector, which is sort of like it adds an ability or it lets you use the resources that you accrue when you're playing goblins in a different way other than to attack but still is something that you could attack with if you had to. And so that's kind of like the type of card that I was thinking about here. And these are the cards that I really think can give your deck extra dimension. And the thing that's really interesting to me is that 
I, I felt like when I was looking through some lists with for tribal tribal decks that there's often like eight cards in a deck that do something like this, or maybe 12 even. So there might be two or three play sets of cards that do something where they, they add an extra thing to what your deck can do. Um, but not, uh, but not buff. So you're kind of thinking like, you know, kite sail freebooters and the reflector mages of the world where it's like, not just something that's like receiving a buff or no, it's, it's things that give other creatures, other abilities or let you use the cards uh, other ways okay Stan? i think he's basically describing every creature in the sliver deck yes yeah. exactly okay I, slivers are a big one you know even if you look at like heritage druid like heritage druid is a card that lets you use your elves in a different way now elves isn't really built up to necessarily buff all the creatures but uh our shirt is in there as as a lord but you know yeah it's like a nebel gas herald where it's like yeah. when another thing comes in i'm tapping something right. because of my static right yeah, so there's there's a lot of different kind of synergy ways that you can do, go with decks based off of that. And I think that's another thing, you know, if we're talking about like, hey, I wish that my crab tribal deck was working, you need these cards too because they're the things that point you in the direction that your deck can go as far as a different game plan goes or what your specific version of aggro is supposed to be like. I think that's what these cards are almost like uncommons in draft that, you know, the gold uncommons in draft that are signposts for what your deck is supposed to do. That's what I think these kind of lieutenant cards are. Maybe there's another term for it, but that's just kind of what, what I thought of. This next one that we have, I, I feel silly that I didn't think of it because it's so obvious, but maybe it's because not a ton of decks have access to these and they're tutors. Yeah. It isn't in a ton of decks, right? But I, I have been playing goblins lately and watching goblins. We've been talking a lot about goblins and goblin matron, you know, I mean, is a card that lets you tutor up a, uh, a goblin, put it into your hand. And there's a few other decks that have access to things like, like this that lets you tutor up a very specific type of card off of a creature. You know, there's the harbingers that cycle from Lorwyn that lets you do that. They're not like cards that people always want to play, but they come up sometimes. And there's other cards like this as well. All right, and finally, payoffs and synergies. I think this sort of piggybacks off of this idea of the lieutenant card, but these are cards that give you access to uh, basically a way to end the game, ultimately, that make your tribe, give your tribe a goal to build up to. Either these are, you know, um, you know something that wins the game when it hits the battlefield, something like a Muxus, maybe something like a Shaman of the Pack, or they're something that really makes your whole deck tick. And once you get this on the board, you're just operating on a whole other axis that makes your, your tribe unique. Yeah. I mean, I think it's everything from like Goblin Grenade. Like often these are not necessarily creatures, right? Like Goblin Grenade is a payoff for this. Thunderkin Awakener is something that lets you do something different and new with your with your um, elementals. And so it's kind of in that middle space between a lieutenant and a payoff card. But these are important too to make sure that you you know, understand if you're thinking about making a deck, uh, that's tribal, you, you do need some, some cards that help you have a good payoff for playing all these cards. Absolutely. So one of the last points before we get into the actual decks we talked about, I noticed that there's other, not just common themes among these tribal strategies, but there are some cards that we see as recurring staples across a variety of tribal decks. I'm sure you're familiar with a handful, if not all of these cavern of souls and other creature matter lands like ancient ziggurat for example sliver hive ally encampment for our, our allies friends out there mm-hmm. auntie's hovel 
Cavern is the big one, though. Yeah, yeah. Cavern's crazy. Cavern is a whole thing that allows these decks to be able to not have their creature payoffs exposed against blue decks. And it's wild. When I was playing with Cavern the last week or so out of Goblins, which is the deck that I was playing with, it, it can just completely thwart decks that think that they're going to beat you because you can cast both of your your payoff cards without them being able to counter it. That's it. Mutable, I think it's also important to mention here because it can be a creature of any type, which then can just get the buffs from the lords or the static lieutenant abilities, that kind of thing. Not quite a land, but an important source of resource management is Aether Vial. Staple in a lot of tribal decks, not in all of them. You know, it doesn't see play in elves, for example, but you get it in humans, you get it in uh, elementals, which is the deck that I played. Nice way. It's in all the good ones. <laughs> Just kidding. I mean, look, Aether Vial is a broken card, right? I mean, legitimately, it's a really super powerful card. It's colorless ramp. It lets you do put creatures into play again, avoiding counter magic. There's just so many th- and put them into play at instant speed. We've we talked about Aether Vial a lot lately and random configurations, but it is super good and belongs in these decks. And if your deck can use Aether Vial, you know, that helps a lot. Something that I never thought of until I heard Cave Dan mention this on an episode of Faithless Brewing not that long ago was that Aether Vial kind of operates like a land that taps for multiple mana. So you can get to the point where on turn four, your Aether Vial is just tapping for three mana effectively. That's the ramp part for sure. And then the la- last one on the list here, I saw Stan, you added it because I had forgotten about it. Collective Company. It's a great point. Yep. You know, these days... I can only think of it in two tribal decks, Elves and Bant Spirits. But this is something that if you have a green-based tribal deck and you can potentially play a powerful card advantage tool, it's essentially a two-for-one. If you don't whiff, Collected Companies now in every format that we talk about. Yeah, I mean, it's if you have high 20s-esque creatures and you know, you're going to want to try to play Collected Company if you can, if your mana base can support it pretty cleanly. And I will, except not in the deck that I'm talking about today. <sighs> All right. So like usual, we're going long. Let's get to the real decks that we picked. That's right. Yeah. Because I have two to talk about. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. When Sean told us to do Tribal Week, Sean didn't tell us what decks to play. So we got to pick whatever was interesting to us and really talk about tribes through these lenses. And I picked five color Skelementals. I mean, Elementals. Elementals. <laughs> Skelementals, only two colors. I've got two pages of notes, but I'm going to try to go through this as succinctly as possible. There was two cards in particular that drew me to this particular strategy. The first one is Lightning Skelemental, a favorite of mine since Modern Horizons 1. I bought a bunch of expensive cards in order to make the old Red Black Skelemental deck work that are now just sitting sleeved up in a in basically storage somewhere. It's fun, it's flashy in its own unique way, but also feels super powerful when you can pair it with cheap synergistic payoffs such as unearth and rakdos midrange decks or thunderkin awakener in the elementals deck the other card that i found really interesting and got me excited to play this in the first place was risen reef a card that dave once called out in a former picks to click episode and for months i ridiculed him mercilessly yeah it's no dovin bomb (laughs) (laughs) roasted I, I played against a Dovin Pond on Arena the other day. Let me tell you. Who won? Uh, my Aura's deck won. Sick. <laughs> yeah, I never took this card seriously until one day I got paired against Elementals in a, in a modern match and watched my opponent's Risen Reef draw 40 cards. 
And I thought to myself, I want to draw 40 cards. Who doesn't want to draw 40 cards? So for those not familiar, what's Elementals trying to do? And I'm going to admit my bias may be showing here, but I honestly felt after playing this deck that its ideal win condition is Lightning Skill Elemental and more specifically Looping Skill Elementals over and over. Bear with me while I try to support this thesis. A very frequent line that I found I could take was play a turn one Flamekin Harbinger, which is your one mana tutor puts any elemental on top of your library. And the cool thing about Harbinger is you can use it to tutor up whatever else you need to get your Skelemental loop going. So if you open a hand that has Thunderkin Awakener, you can grab the Skelemental. If you have Skelementals, you get Thunderkin Awakener. If you have neither, maybe you get a Risen Reef to try to draw into cards. Remember what I said about tutors? They're good ish tutors ish yeah and the interesting thing at least with this one is that it's kind of thought seize proof so even though you have to reveal the card that you fetch and you put it on top of your library it's not in your hand so unless your opponent's playing thought scours against you or they're just on blue black mill that card is pretty safe and at least until your turn then on turn two you can play an unsettled mariner gives your creature some protection it's a it's a shapeshifter that makes any spell that targets your creatures cost one more to cast. Otherwise, it is countered. Then on turn three, you play Skelemental just to send a message. You just get it in there. Hits for as much as six damage. Your opponents have to discard two cards. And then finally, on turn, thor- turn four, you play your Thunderkin, which whenever Thunderkin Awaken or attacks, you can grab an Elemental card whose toughness is lower than Thunderkin's. Thunderkin's a 1-2, Skelemental is a 6-1. You grab your Skelemental, and then you can just start attacking with Skellies every single turn. Worth, worth noting, this line also works with the turn 1 Aether Vial, since you can Vial in your Harbinger on turn 2, along with playing your 2-drop if you have 2 lands. Stan, when you when you attack with Thunderkin Awakener, do you have to th- say, Thunderkin Power Activate? <laughs> I will from now on when I'm playing in the Mana Traders qualifier with this deck. <laughs> and then Ooh, your opponents spoilers. will be like, I hear nothing. <laughs> I never open the chat. Great. They'll just go about their day. <laughs> I do want to point out that this deck, as much as I think Skelemental and looping it is super important, it's not all in on Skelemental, and it has a variety of threats and even mid-range tools to either help stall or close out other games when maybe you can't get a Skelemental loop online. Yeah, about those... I see that there's only one Omnath Locus of Creation. Is that a typo? It's all you need. Okay. It's the worst Omnath in this deck. Ooh, <laughs> love that. Let's hear some more. I'll, get, I'll actually get to those in a second. But anyway, I slice okay. it. I do think that this deck is ultimately trying to present a threat and then generate some sort of card advantage that eventually pushes that threat through. Um, and it's, it's this card advantage that I really want to take a moment to talk about. Because this deck is amazing at managing resources and provides several different paths towards significant card advantage that actually let you be somewhat flexible depending on the conditions of whatever matchup you're in. Risen Reef obviously draws cards. When it enters the battlefield, it draws a card, and then it's a lieutenant. Every other elemental that enters the battlefield while Reef is online draws a card as well. On the other hand, Skelemental takes your opponent down on cards almost as good as drawing cards yourself. But even if you're still only drawing one card per turn, if you have four in hand and your opponent is hellbent, most opponents are just going to have a really hard time recovering from that position. 
they're never going to have more than one card in their hand if you're attacking with the skill elemental every turn. I want to point out that Risen Reef plus a Thunderkin Awakener loop nets you cards while tanking your opponents down. Uh, it really feels just absolutely hard to lose from this position because now your Skelemental is drawing a card every time it enters the battlefield while also potentially taking your opponent down on cards. Mm-hmm. What's cool is Thunderkin also works with several other creatures in this deck, including Vesperlark, Flickerwisp, the Flamekin, aforementioned Flamekin Harbinger, Spite Bellows, which is a removal spell in the form of an elemental. Not to mention, Thunderkin also helps you get back an answered Risen Reef. They're so easy to kill. They're one ones. It's a three mana one one. It dies to Spike Field Hazard. A stiff wind. Although I guess Spike Field Hazard is an exile effect, so Thunderkin's not getting it back. But Gutshot, right. Gutshot's the better example. And then finally, Risen Reef plus Harbinger is essentially a tutor that leaves a body because you can arrange the triggers in such a way that when uh, if you have Risen Reef online, when Harbinger enters, you put the creature on the top of your library first, and then you draw it from the Risen Reef trigger. The deck doesn't have lords, and really, it pretty much only has one no lieutenant lords. in the form of Reef. Yeah, you don't need lords when you're just drawing all the cards. It's got a lot of payoffs, though. Yeah, it's, it, in yeah. my mind, it's all about the tutor and synergies. Yep. Flamekin finds your cards. Thunderkin makes your cards recursive. And then Omnath, Locus of the Royal, which is the teamer Omnath, it translates your board into a removal spell, and then it helps you develop a threat, because every time a land enters the battlefield, you can put a 1-1 counter on an elemental. And then, Dave, what happens when you have eight lands? You draw a card. Seems good. Importantly, not a landfall trigger. Just just in text. Just not actually landfall. M20 did not have landfall as a keyword. Right, so we can't have it on there. God, that tilts me. <laughs> well, it is reminder text, or whatever it's called. It's not. It's not a... I forget what the difference is. It's not an ability. It's a trigger reminder text or something. Yeah. Anyway, Stan. Dave, I'm making great time. I feel like I'm George Costanza driving on a highway. What'd you love about it? This deck does several things really well and and genuinely impressed me on several fronts. In addition to the card advantage engines. It's got amazing threats. Skelemental, sure. Voice of Resurgence. Really potent threat. Makes it hard for your opponents to cast creatures... Uh, at instant speed on your turn is voice okay again it's passable in a deck full of (laughs) elementals yes and you know in some games you can actually develop a board that's you know three to five creatures wide you're not really getting much wider than that and i found in this strategy but then the token that an answered voice of resurgence leaves behind is an easy three three four four maybe five five it's true shout out of course to flicker wisp three one but that beats and it also provides a little extra synergy when it comes down because maybe you can uh, flicker your tutor, maybe you can flicker um, one of your uh, spite bellows to remove a different creature. I did find the deck had pretty good disruption as well on all of its bodies, uh, or on the bodies that are disruptive in their design. Unsettled Mariner, I mentioned. Voice of Resurgence, I mentioned. Shriek Maw, modern legal card. I always forget this card's modern legal. Oh, yeah, that's been a thing. It's like it always just sort of shows up now and then. Yeah. And Shriekma has got an evoke cost, one in a black. When it enters, it destroys a non-artifact, non-black creature. And casts terror. Yeah. That's the, that's the card. And then Spite Bellows, uh, same. It's got an, It's a 6-1 with evoke. Evoke is one red red. When it enters, it deals six damage to a t- an opponent's target creature. You know the other thing that bugs me about this deck? 
<laughs> it's got streak mod. It doesn't have mole drifter. That's all I have to say. But I guess you draw enough cards with Roots and Reef. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And what's cool about these two cards, Shriek Bond and Spite Bellows, is that Spite Bellows in particular, you can loop with Thunderkin. Uh, Shriek Maw is possible. It's a little harder because you need Omnath Locus of Rage. If you have the Teamer Omnath online, you can put an extra counter on your Thunderkin Awakener, making it a 2-3, which then lets you start looping your Shriek Maws, which are 3-2s. Last thing that was really impressive about this deck, it has literal perfect mana. That's crazy. Never, ever struggled for colors in my five-color deck. I mean, it's, this doesn't even do Ancient Ziggurat. Doesn't need it. And, it t- and it totally could. It doesn't need it. It's got four Cavern. It's got four Primal Beyond, which is the Elemental Tribal Rainbow Land. I can't believe it's an Elemental Tribal Land. I know. Lorwyn. God love it. <laughs> it it does have four un- Unclaimed Territory, which could be Ziggurat, but I think you ultimately don't play Ziggurat because you want to have ability to cast a turn one Aether Vial amazing i found between the 12 lands that i just mentioned and the four aether vial i always had the exact colors i need to cast any spell i need the deck even has a handful of fetch lands i think to provide some extra synergies for the handful of omnaths that you play maybe if omnath ever gets outmoded either omnath you can cut those fetches and play the four ziggurat but since Locus of Creation is an elemental, having those extra landfall triggers is just free value. There were some conditions where it struggled. I don't think this deck can beat a Wrath, just outright, unless you have a bunch <laughs> of cards in hand after the Sweeper, which is possible, but hard. Also, Blood Moon, huge pain in the tuchus when you're trying to produce five colors of mana. Surprise! Oh, perfect mana besides Blood Moon. <laughs> Blood Moon's a huge pain, but it's not an auto-lose. Um, in part because you have um, the Vile, but mm-hmm. also I, I have a brief story to share about a game I won where someone played a turn one Blood Moon against me. And you have Noble Skullamental. So <laughs> It's my favorite mana elf. Check this out. I'm on the draw. I'm playing against Mono Red Prison. My Mono Red Prison opponent plays a turn one Blood Moon by going Land, Simeon Spirit Guide, Ritual, Blood Moon. Living the dream. Love it. Basically, they're down to three cards in hand, but against the five color strategy, that's great, right? In my hand, I have two lands, Skelemental, Thunderkin Awakener. Yeah. I draw a card. I don't play a turn one land, discard Skelemental to hand size. Turn two, I play a land, say go. And then turn three, I play the Thunderkin Awakener and just start swinging with the Skelementals, <laughs> and I, I won very quickly. The pitch to hand size move, Stan, very good. That's like some legacy reanimator stuff. Thanks. I, I felt really, really clever. Also worth noting, the deck does not have any main deck answers to Ensnaring Bridge, so a well-played Karn, the great creator, might just be lights out. All right. What's your bottom line, Stan? I feel it coming on. This deck is awesome. And it's, in my mind, it's like the perfect blend of both fun and good. The things that you're doing with this deck, fairly novel from a tribal strategy. I don't know any other tribal decks that are just generating so many cards on your side while also depleting your opponent's hand. In addition to being able to tutor up removal spells, being able to play different flicker synergies, playing Omnath and random landfall triggers just because you can and it's absolutely free. Fun and, I mean, good enough and fun enough. That's a good combo. 
One of the people who hailed this deck to me previously was Lawson Zandi, whom at least the three of us and I think other people in the Slack Nation and other Magic players as well might recognize as, as a skilled player, a very skilled player, but one that while Lawson loves to win, he's never been the type of player to my knowledge that wants to gravitate to, toward like whatever the tier one, tier zero best deck of the month is. And I think this deck is perfect for that type of player because you get to do super powerful stuff by identifying tricky lines that on the one hand can reward, you know, skilled players that know how to find answers to difficult situations, but are also just plain fun and flashy and exciting for maybe more developing players as well. And and frankly, the lessons that I learned playing humans once upon a time, they just don't apply here at all. Like, the one lesson that you might be able to apply from humans is always play the turn one Aether Vial. Otherwise, none of the other cards have analogs to any other tribal synergy deck I've ever played. I do think it's probably like a believe plus, leave minus. There's a reason it's not taking down modern challenges. <laughs> and maybe that's because of how vulnerable it is to Karn and Snaring Bridge and, and creatures. Like Karn because of its snaring bridge. Looks, looks like looks like Plague Engineer would be really bad. All the X ones. Yeah, Plague Engineer is really bad against a lot of tribal strategies, though. Yeah, particularly bad. Yeah. So play this deck if you're trying to look for a new challenge. If you like playing, you know, tribal strategies, I think you can do worse than this. Frankly, I think in this day and age, it might be as good, if not better, than Spirits as in Modern, while doing something that's way cooler because it's got you know the most heavy metal card of all time. <laughs> Skelemental. All right, man. I did. I did great. Great time. You did great. Loved Efficient. It. Great work, Stan. Okay, Dave. Take as long as you want. Okay. Perfect. I've, I've I've got some notes, but they don't matter. Okay. I want to see goblins. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh man, spoiled it. So yeah. So I I played goblins this week, mostly kind of inspired by the, how good goblins is in historic, and just being reminded that goblins combo is also a thing in modern. It's powerful. I mean, I didn't realize that. Um, People were were kind of back on it, and in fact, someone won the modern champs with it. They went eight zero with it <laughs> over the weekend okay. on on Magic Online. I did not play their list because it came out after that, but um, yeah. So here's the deal: what drew me this deck? I wanted to give this deck a shot because it had so much hype back when Snoop came out. Conspicuous Snoop came out and kind of died down. I just wanted to see what was up with it. Right now, it seemed like maybe a good time to try to win via combo if you can make it happen. And then uh, I also, like I said, I had no idea people would suddenly pile this back to an 8-0, but I think it's a resilient kind of strategy to check out. What's this deck trying to do? So we've covered this deck before. Um, I'll, I'm going to go really fast through this. So I think everybody knows, but you're trying to win through the combination of casting Bogart Harbinger, another Harbinger, another tutor, when you have Conspicuous Snoop on the battlefield. And so the thing is, it makes you be able to, when you have Snoop on the battlefield, you can use the Harbinger to put Kiki Jiki on top of your deck. And then Snoop has the ability of tap to make a copy of something, yada, yada, yada. Mm. And then what you do is you tap and copy conspicuous Snoop over and over and over again. The last time you want to trigger it, you copy the Harbinger again. Instead, you go and get Sling Gang Lieutenant, put that on top of your deck, then sacrifice all the goblins that you have to kill your opponent with the activated ability from sling gang lieutenant people were amped up about this like people were afraid of it it was winning it was it was something that people were caring about yeah i was so nervous about this deck that when the prospect of goblins and modern 
became very realistic. It, it won the first modern challenge the first weekend after Snoop got printed. I went ahead and ordered four Force of Despair. Because <laughs> I'm interesting, interesting move. I figured this is the car that's going to beat the Goblin Menace. Yeah, you have to really time that time casting that card really well, but uh, it, maybe that could work. And I will. So, so what's the tribal bonus of this deck? So, this is another deck that you know doesn't run our like traditional Lord plan. Like, it's not a Merfolk style deck. It's not a Spirit sp- style deck. It's a combo deck, kind of. It's it's very synergy based. So, it has in addition to the Snoops. And the the Snoops on its own, it also has 12 cards that tutor or draw goblins in the form of Goblin Matron, Goblin Ringleader, and Harbinger, as I mentioned before. Snoop also lets you cast extra cards so because you, you can cast the goblins off the top of your deck. So you have a whole bunch of ways to like filter your cards, set up your draws, and also draw extra cards with the Ringleader and the, um, the Snoop itself. You know, it's also buffed by the fact that you can use Skirk Prospector to get to ramp and kind of get a ton of mana into the late game. It has given me a lot of flexibility there. So there's a lot of little synergistic plays. I think that this deck adds up to being actually like pretty complicated to play. I don't think it's easy to to know exactly when you should be searching for your one lord that's in the deck that gives your goblins haste. That's mostly why it's there um, versus when you're supposed to go and get the combo when you're supposed to play around the combo, when you should go get a ringleader with a matron instead of a combo piece of the matron. I think there's all these different kind of forms, even occasionally hard casting Kiki Jiki onto the board led me to some wins just by being able to make copies of things a couple of times, then search up my second Kiki Jiki and use that ability to be able to do that. So there's, there's a lot of kind of like complicated triggers plays. The other thing is that occasionally, very occasionally you can play with like a go wide plan right where you can um if you die to removal with your with your primary plan occasionally you have a bunch of extra tokens around or uh tokens or even just a few bodies like goblin matron you get a lord out you attack a couple of times and then you sacrifice the goblins you have to sling gang lieutenant you just win that way through like a value plan so you know there's a couple of other things that are here too like aether vial can help you get around removal and help you kind of go a little bit faster it helps you get around counter magic like i mentioned the build that i played was playing four thoughtsies which is just like a great protection for for your combo to be able to go and like pop into someone's hand grab the key grab their removal spell grab their counter spell and kind of go on from there and i also mentioned that cavern of souls won me at least one game where an opponent was sitting across from me with a grip full of counter spells while i was just yeah. hitting them with two twos basically um i think the deck is clearly legit you know i didn't do super awesome with the deck because it was my first time playing it i did okay with it in the practice rooms then i took it through a league and only did got a two three but i think that was mostly due to pilot like practice errors like missing other plays that i could have had backup plans things like that i don't feel like i played into removal a lot of times or things like that i think it was just kind of like well i don't know what to do at this point or maybe i whiff off of my goblin ringleader which is actually i think a really kind of under um underappreciated card in this particular build since we don't have access to muxus hmm. in modern weirdly enough and i hope we never could you do. imagine that yeah that would be pretty unreal yeah, um, one of the weird cards that's available in historic. Yeah, maybe it'll be fine for modern. That's six mana. Yeah, that's true. Hopefully we never have to worry about it, though. So I do think this deck is real. I, I might go back to it and play with it because I actually, like I said, I think it has some lines against 
like the Uro Pile decks, especially because of Cavern of Souls and Thoughtseize. And so while the Edo deck wasn't running Thoughtseize, I would probably give it a shot again just as like training wheels for myself. But the uh the Edo deck from the champs had some other so the the uh the big challenge had some really interesting cards in it. Like it had Cranko and it had Pashalik Mons and some other kind of outlets to do some goblin synergistic stuff that was pretty cool. So what made it good? Combo pieces. Munitions expert is good for a little bit of spot removal to kill a planeswalker even sometimes. Goblin ringleader, really good. Sling gang lieutenant by itself, also really good. Uh, I think it's a really good deck. I think it's definitely worth checking out if you're interested in this kind of strategy. Sweet. But now I have a second deck to talk about. Yeah, you said you had two decks. I do have two decks to talk about. So I wanted to talk about goblins. So I played another goblin deck. And I played this deck just because Shane so angrily slagged this deck oh, off on our 100th That's episode. Just livid. Because Shane was like, this isn't a real deck. This is what like nine-year-olds play, blah, 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 blah. Sounds just like me. Clearly so Magic play- is 13 and up. Yeah, exactly. He's, they should be taken out of the store. So I, I did a league with eight whack. Did you play practice matches before you did the league? No, that? You just no, went, no, you, no. You blind, blind, <laughs> I just blind went into it. So look, upload, click play. I got a really quick, really quick dive on this deck. What's a deck trying to do? It's trying to go fast. It's trying to whack people until they're dead. That's what eight whack does. It's got eight of them to do it. I'm not sure that this is a tribal deck. Like weirdly, by the definitions that we made right now, there really isn't any tribal synergy in here. A lot of the cards are goblins. It's almost more like one drop tribal than it is like beautiful goblins tribal although like i said so many of the cards are goblin however there is one big payoff that is super important to this deck and that is goblin grenade which gives you a way to do to close somebody off so it's just fast there's no lords there's no anything you're just trying to play a one drop then play a couple more one drops then play a goblin bushwhacker or a reckless bush bushwhacker yeah, bushwhacker is the lord here yeah i guess that's true they really are kind of like lords they just only last for a turn but they give all your guys haste and that is pretty good the thing is they give all your creatures haste so a lot of decks with eight whack these days have like mem knights and ornithopters in them and stuff like that i wasn't playing that i was playing a <laughs> goblin version of this deck so i mean i think those are great cards they're they're really the kind of like way to do this But there are some interesting, tricky ways that help this get even better. And the big one, honestly, is Burning Tree Emissary, of course, because, you know, the Wombo Combo is to draw a couple of them, put down a Foundry Street Denizen on turn one, have, you know, cast two Burning Tree Emissaries, then cast a Reckless Bushwhacker with Surge and go forward from there and attack for like, you know, what is that, like 10 damage on turn two, potentially? It's a lot. It adds up fast. The other thing that you can do with these decks that they do quite often is they play a card called Devastating Summons, which I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember this card, but it is kind a of. one mana card that lets you sacrifice X lands to bring two XX elemental tokens into play. And so what you do is you kind of use this to set up a surge play with Bushwhacker where you tap all your mana, cast the Devastating Summons, sacrifice all your land so you get two five fives or two four fours or whatever then you use your leftover mana to drop another one one and then cast one of the bushwhacker effects and go from there mm-hmm. so shame sounds sweet i it love decks sweet. like this you know what this is the kind of stuff i played in standard this is good you know what how do you like it stan and i were texting about this deck on saturday night when i was playing it because oh, what, what? <clears throat> you were texting well you were back channel we were back channeling you because I almost trophied with this deck. <laughs> <laughs> My man. I beat 
uh, a, like a black white tokens deck that had scourge in it for some reason. I beat Etron, Yogmoth, Burn. Those are my four wins, and then I lost in the last round to Mono Red uh, M Hayashi Prowess to Obosh Prowess. Sweet, it was. I love it. It was amazing, and I was sitting there the whole time. I was just like, I got a trophy with this to make Shane so mad. But that'd be so good. You know what? I'm gonna go back <laughs> when I just want to like do some brainless attacking. This is the deck to do it with, even more than Prowess. I guess Prowess, uh, Prowess is harder brains. to play. Yeah, Dave. You know how we talked about. One of the appeals of MTG Arena is that it's really easy to pick up and, and just play. Mm-hmm. My question for you, did you rent this deck or did you buy it for the whopping total <laughs> of 18 tickets? I, I rented it. Actually, I didn't even look at how much it cost. Yeah, I, I rented it. I'm just saying, like, if you want a cheap, good deck that will almost trophy every time, 18, t- 18 bucks right there. Mana Trader should have like a bot that's just like Mana Traders underscore goblins. You can just go get it for free. You know, the, <laughs> the funniest thing about this is that when I was close to, um, I was like, oh my God, I might trophy and this might be in the, the list. You know, the main reason that it would have made the list, even if someone else had been playing 8-Wack. Uh, I only had 10 cards in my sideboard and I was too lazy to figure out what the rest of the cards in the sideboard should be. So I just was like, I don't even care. I'm just going to go into this league with a 10 card sideboard and just play that's good. I like it. It's good. Eight All whack. Right. It's real. Play it. I have a somewhat similar deck to eight whack. I ran out slivers. Okay. So slivers are cool. Slivers share a hive mind, like some kind of weird star war, star Trek Borg thing. And they share their abilities with other slivers on the battlefield introduced, introduced in 97 back in like tempest block. Like I think Stan was born then. Um, <laughs> And then, you know, they printed in uh, Time Spiral Block in Magic 2014 and then in 2015 and then again in Modern Horizons. There is a lot of lore about Slivers. Hugely, hugely popular. Like a lot of Sliver lore. I was playing, of course, still playing during Tempest. And yeah, people loved Slizzard Slizzard decks. Sliver decks. Okay. And there's so many Slivers. There are so many of them. The tribal bonus is basically like... They each sliver basically offers every sliver you control, including itself, a certain keyword or ability or triggered ability or, you know, static thing like, you know, simple stuff like Gale Rider gives everything flying mana weft lets you tap it to add a mana of any color. Predatory is basically your Lord. There's, you know, there's a lot of options. There's some weird stuff like pay two mana sacrifice gain for life. (laughs) Pay two life, return it to the owner's hand. Everything has provoke. Everything has flanking. Yeah. That's, I think that's, that's, yeah, okay, there's a real area. There actually is one that has flanking. Unreal. Um, horsemanship. Um, okay. And horsey sliver. <laughs> with, you know, they've made so many slivers over such a long time, some great, some weird. They haven't really ever, they haven't really been like a real thing. Like, you know, there's people who like playing slivers. There's like, I think there's slivers EDH style stuff. There's just so many ways to build the deck. You'd think that you could craft it to like attack a particular meta or be so aggressive that you can just kill anyone, you know, fairly often. Um, whether it's like aggression or resiliency or recursion or having s- silver bullets, like slivers gives you lots of options. And so, I like slivers. Like, I think the concept is cool. I think the cards are cool. I think the options are cool. 
let's run this through a league, see what happens. Okay, like I've talked about it. Let's just do it. So I went to mtgdex.net, which I'm starting to like about as much as I like goldfish from my deck discovery, to be honest. And I was mildly surprised to see that Slivers is kind of still a thing. Like it 5-0s leagues often. It shows up in modern prelim results. It's piloted regularly by one of our favorite uh, Magic Online pilots, Just Burn 420, who we've mentioned a number of times. Just Burn um, 420, who did a burn deck that had Oko in it, I believe, back I think, in the day. Was that Just Burn 420? <laughs> I think it was. And I would also like to say, Just Burn 420, if you're out there, get at us on Twitter. Yeah, just let us know. Let us know you're out there, Just Burn 420. Um, and so what I noticed about these lists in 2020, uh, since Horizons, is like they pretty they lean pretty aggressively. Like they're mostly one and two drops, like maybe two or three three drops at the top end. And all of the abilities on the slivers are about getting damage through. Like our ones are like striking silver and gale riders. Excuse me, striking sliver uh, gives first strike. Gale rider sliver is flying. Sidewinder is the the aforementioned flanking. You know, twos like Cloud Shredder, that's from Horizons, that we picked, you know, to give Flying in Haste. Uh, Dregscape is Unearth. Leeching uh, makes the opponent lose one life whenever the Sliver attacks. You know, we have Predatory and Sinew as our lords. Unsettled Mariner, a card that Stan talked about in Elementals, is also here. Um, our threes are like Frenetic Silver. Sliver. I keep saying silver. Uh, phonetic sliver. You pay zero mana and flip a coin. Uh-huh. And if you win the coin, you get to blink the creature. So like, kind of protects against removal and wraths and That's stuff like named that. Named after one of my favorite cards ever, Frenetic Ifrit. Oh yeah, it's also in Izzet colors. Yeah. So I mean, there's nothing cute or fancy in this deck. Like it's about beating down, preferably in the air uh, with haste and winning. Nothing okay? cute or fancy about the slivers deck is what Shane <laughs> just said. I mean, it's it's I mean, it's it's tribal in perhaps its purest form, which is like it's the sum of its parts more than anything like these cards suck by themselves. <laughs> All of these cards suck like and they are only good as the sliver hive. Right. And like so this the sideboard is like really tidy. Like you get to play. I was really hoping I was going to be like, okay, I can pick all these weird, cool slivers and people are going to play like these silver bullets, but no, they're only paying, playing harmonic sliver, which is dope. It removes artifacts and enchantments. Uh, guess what colors it's in Selesnia. Um, but you know, it wants to play chalice of the void, Leyland of the void, uh, dismember. And, you know, just to like basically say, here's my silver bullets against what you're trying to do. Right. So what did I like about this deck? I ran through a league. Um, I liked a little bit less than I was hoping. Like, it's fun to cast slivers. People aren't expecting them. Like, when you do Cavern of Souls naming sliver, people probably are like, oh, sliver, sliver person over there. (laughs) Um, So you get to be the sliver player for the league, right? Um, But unfortunately, this approach is kind of dull. Like, you don't get to do a lot of cute stuff here. Like, sure, you get some Aether Vial tricks and stuff like that. And it can be effective. You can beat down. Um, you can generate some sneaky wins, like off of the back of Aether Vile Tricks and cards like Leeching Sliver, which is that one that deals one damage, like the opponent loses a life for every attacking sliver. Like when those are on the board in multiples, like that's crazy. Like you have like three or four slivers attacking, uh, dealing like six to eight damage just on the swings alone. Like that's really effective. And it's certainly fast when things are going like you want. 
like, and this is kind of where it fits into our original tribal deck concept, which is my tribal synergies work. I beat you down. And the value of my cards was greater than the mana cost because of the synergies that I had in play here. And, and that works like it can work for sure. And, and, and like, I also liked harmonic sliver. That was sweet. Like this, uh, one of my favorite plays was versus Tron. Like, um, I viled, I viled a harmonic sliver in and, and just on their end step, uh, blew up their worm coil engine. Then I untapped and played two more slivers to take out their worm tokens and then sealed the win. Is this the answer to worm coil engine that I've been waiting for, for my whole life? Harmonic sliver, my friend. Um, so, but there's some issues like it mold terribly. Like, um, this is a true critical mass style deck. Like every sliver you don't have is a huge problem because slivers themselves are under eight. Like you got a lot of one ones for one mm-hmm. and two twos for two in this deck. Right. So they need to be with each other to have the power that you want. Um, and that's not always the case with other tribal decks, I think. Yeah. And this is the, one of the archetypical decks that, you know, modern only had access to sinew sliver for a long time. And then when M14 came out and Predatory Sliver was printed, it suddenly had two lords. And that's when people really started talking about whether this deck could be real. Because there were a lot of interesting slivers in Time Spiral, but there was only one plus one plus one sliver. So Yeah. And that's and that's kind of what you need. Like you need the buff. Like sure, flying is sweet, haste is sweet, flanking is sweet. But like you gotta have some power on these on these creatures here. Um I ran into some bad luck. Like I had multiple like five land opening hands and like some moles and like the odds of that is 3.5% to happen. Um, and I had to have it multiple times. Shane complaining about moles. It's like the weather in Denver. <sighs> you know, yep. Weather in Denver, uh, <laughs> format, format, format meta problems. Meta problems. <laughs> um, Check your boxes, so, everybody. But, but going, going, when you go down slivers, it just felt like an immediate loss because like the cards themselves don't have, the innate power that, you know, like a lightning skeletal might have, or like a reflector mage might have, or, or you know, a goblin bushwhacker might have. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> are there no two questions? Are there, were there no tutors? There are no tutors, no tutors in this deck. And, and likewise, there's no sliver. That's like when sliver is ETB, it draws a card. You don't no. not in this build i mean there may be one i bet you it costs more than it potentially should who knows um but i was just kind of going with like what the meta builds were looking like right now um but yeah a card draw would be great like i think you kind of rely on the horizon lands um to do that now like the the cycling lands from modern horizons you want to run those and stuff like that so i didn't really feel like this was doing anything stronger than what other people were doing and you know, they can be swept away with anger of the gods really easily. Kozlex return, even yeah. like these, these are not strong creatures on their own. And if you don't have the Lords and don't have haste or don't have flying, like it's sort of like, it's really is a kit of parts deck. Right. And like you, you have to be faster than your opponent. So you're kind of looking for like, I need a Lord in my opening hand and I need the lands or the aether vial or something like that to make sure this gets on the board. So like when your opponent has the ability to like really pick apart your board, because it's like this, this sliver matters. This sliver does not like, I don't care that your sliver is all at first strike, my friend. 
Like, I don't care that your slivers have flanking. I care about your, you know, your, uh, your plus one, plus one Lord. I care about the flying and haste Lord. And so like, if you're up against a fatal push deck or an inquisition of Kozilek or a Thoughtseize deck or anything like that, they can just be like, pew, 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 and like, you're just kind of left with a pretty anemic board. And so that's not quite as fun. Um, when you're up against interaction, but like I did, I went, I went two, three and you know what I beat Tron twice because mm, nice decks like this, just eat, you know, there's yeah. eat Tron alive. Right. I mean, I had, a, but the, the, they were some pretty fun wins against Tron where it's like, yeah, Tron multi four, but they had a, you know, a worm coil engine, but then I violin, uh, the flying sliver and I violin, uh, Lord or I violin the harmonic, the draining sliver yeah. and I do, you know, 10 in the air out of nowhere. So it's like, sweet, you know, that's the kind of stuff that this deck can pull off when everything comes together. Should have played the first sliver. Talk numero uno. I mean, talk about a great way to recovering from mulligans. You do have to get to turn five, but then all of your slivers have cascade. You just, you spend five mana for the best cocoa of all time. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm not sold on slivers. It feels too much like I have to have everything come together really well for this deck to perform. If it's a really uninteractive meta, then maybe this is kind of like an aggro deck you can have some fun with, or like it is fast enough where it's like, you know, I can, I can get the job done on rate with a prowess deck or on rate with a burn deck or something like that. But, you know, I I don't know why you'd pick this besides you're just like, I love being the slivers player. And like, I'm expecting it to be sort of a, a Tron meta, or I want to be in the air with my eight flying Lord type thing, or my eight flying lieutenants type thing. I can get over everyone else on like a humans meta or something like that. But, you know, um, it's only one league. It's a very small sample size. It's pretty fun. I had some bad luck because it's me uh, and I don't know how to mulligan very well. So, but yeah. I would give it. I would give it a believe minus, uh, but a believe plus for fun. Hey, perfect. All right. So we talked about three tribes real quick. Let's wrap up our takeaways because I think we learned some important lessons. What separates the cute from the strong? You know, I think if you think if you have a tribe that you love, let's say you love goats. Okay, love them. Sheep, goats, lambs. You name squirrels. Them. They're the best. What are things to look out for in future sets that could potentially take a certain tribe over the top? A, extra copies of Lords. Mm-hmm. Tribal decks, apparently, we have found today, don't technically need Lords to be successful. But if you have access to Lords, eight appears to often be one of those sweet spot numbers that uh, gives you a lot of consistency and, and, and reliable power. Alternatively, look for Lieutenants. Cards that either give all of your creatures of a certain type an extra ability or can potentially be a really huge synergistic payoff that rewards you for playing a bunch of creatures of a certain type. I think it's important to have some form of advantage. You know, Dave's advantage had speed. My advantage had cards. Shane's advantage had personality. (laughs) Whatever it is, your deck needs to be able to do something that is potentially better than whatever your opponent's doing in that regard. Maybe it's because you're drawing more cards. Maybe it's because you're going faster. What have you? Anything? Yeah, I, I mean, I think the other thing is, <clears throat> I just say really consider what the mana is going to look like. And if there's mana incentives to play, 
your deck, you know, can you play things? Uh, what happens when you played on, what's it, Uncharted Territory and Cavernous Souls? Is there another land that you can throw in yeah. on top of that that can help? Uh, the other thing I would say is uh, really consider if your deck can be, play Aether Vial mm-hmm. or not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Important. It's huge, too. I mean, I do think one of those things that all tribal decks need to at least have an answer for, and it's not the 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 single thing that they have to do, but you kind of have to know how fast you win because, you know, some tribal decks just win on turn three or four. And it doesn't appear to be the, the thing that they all have to do to be good. But if, if you're not winning on turn three or four, what else are you doing that, that counts? I think that what separates the cube from the strong, I think is a lot of the, the individual power level of the cards, like how much has to go right for you to win versus like, what's my fail state you know, I talk a lot about ceilings and floors, and I think you have to look at examine what your floor is. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. And the last thing is don't forget about Plague Engineer. Some <laughs> days it's just going to ruin your day. Some days you're going to be able to keep an eye out and be able to play around it, but Plague Engineer is rough. So keep an eye out for decks that might run it. All right. Good job, everyone. Thanks again to Sean for recommending such an awesome topic. This was a really fun one for me. If your bingo card has Stan gets excited about his sleeve, believe he for the week and insists that it's a real (laughs) deck. Check that off your box. That's a free space, man. If uh, if your card has Dave says a deck is harder to play than it looks, I said that one too. If you want to pick a future episode for us to talk about you know let's say you have a topic in mind you're dying to hear us dive into merfolk or you absolutely want to hear us you know play in a legacy preliminary the best way to do that is be a a top tier patron of the dive down but at least for now that does wrap up this week's show if you haven't yet make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out and if you use apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review if you'd like to submit a question to the podcast, pick our brain on something in modern, pioneer, historic, or magic in general, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. I just remembered something. Can we do a special thanks and shout out to everyone who tweeted us screenshots of their Spotify wrapped from this year where it had yeah. <laughs> the dive down as, as one of their top five podcasts for 2020. That was so touching. I loved every one of those we saw. So thanks for everyone in the Slack, on Twitter, and elsewhere who shared that with us. That was super cool. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. Find that at patreon.com slash the dive down. You can sign up for Mana Traders using promo code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word. It'll get you 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. And now you can support the Dive Down with no money down by downloading Untapped, deck tracking assistant that works with Magic the Gathering Arena. And a link to our Untapped affiliate code is in the episode notes. Working on making it a little easier to find that. So you can just go to a a snappy little website, but for now, check out the show notes for this episode and you can find the download link there. As always, special thanks to the bands. And uh, if you want to come and hang out with us and see us tape a live episode, you know, episode 100 went so well that we've been live streaming the last couple of episodes on Twitch. So if you want to come in, keep an eye out on Twitter, we'll announce when we're starting on Monday nights for recording. Generally, we do it at about eight central. Uh, we're on Shane's Twitch channel now, the dive down underscore Shane live streaming. 
these days. We'll see uh, how long we keep it going, (laughs) but uh, keep an eye out for it because we'd love to see you. And it's a fun way to come and see how the sausage is made. If you're, if you're the type of person who wants to see how the sausage is made or a podcast. Yeah. Or that. How about check out my sausage podcast too? The sausage King of Chicago. Exactly. (laughs) As always special. Thanks to the bands nowhere and space blood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and join a tribe. Tribe.